draw your attention to this piece of art here. Hands up if you recognize uh, it's not an original. If it was an original, none of you would have to pay tithe for the next five years. We would just sell it and we could do everything that we want. But it's not an original, but hands up if you know what piece of art it is. Okay, I see uh, Lily there. What piece of art is it? Starry night. Excellent. Everyone give Lily a round of applause for her, uh, her culture and her artistic insight. That is awesome by Vincent Van... Van how do you pronounce it? Van Gogh? We say Van Gogh in the UK, but apparently if you're a Dutchie, it's Vincent Van Gogh. So, uh, so I'm just going to go with... I've lived here for, for long enough, so we're going to absolutely butcher me and go with Vincent Van Gogh. So this is uh, the this piece of work, Starry Night, by Vincent Van Gogh. And uh, this was uh, a, the Nathan ran a youth competition at Karen and Scott's house and they painted this, this group led by Shannon Carrigan, painted this in half an hour and they won. So if there's anyone here who is part of this group, can you raise your hands? There we go, Hannah, which is awesome. So uh, they really did an excellent job, a wonderful piece of art, massive, right? So uh, really, but... And then I was also hearing from Stacy, and I've heard from a couple of other people, apparently there's this immersive experience where you can go to some place, you know, in the downtown area, an art gallery, I guess, maybe, uh, where they have, where you can kind of walk in amongst uh, Vincent van Gogh's um, art, that it's there on the wall, it's there on the floor, uh, you know, you can see, you know, all the details and the cracks and the you know, in the art and everything, it's, it's a really incredible experience. And now, I've not been there, um, but I do have this moment where I had my own immersive experience. And uh, it, was, uh, it was like 3D, it was, it was incredible. And, and it was while I was on the Logos Hope ship, you know, that's where lots of my ex exciting stories happen. Uh, but we were on the Logos Hope ship and we were, we were a couple of days out from our previous port and we were a couple of days out from our next port and uh, you uh, and as you looked out as, as I'm sure I've related in the past you know as you look out the horizon stretches as far as the eye can see which is an incredible experience maybe maybe broken by one container ship there or one container ship there but other than that it's just ocean and sky it is amazing and when we were sailing or when we were working on this missionary ship um, for the 350 missionaries from 60 different countries that lived on the ship, um, our voyages were kind of like a rare opportunity to rest and to relax and to, um, you know, to recover from uh, the crowds and crowds of the people who would usually visit the ship in every port, sometimes up to tens of thousands of people, not just in a week, but maybe in a day. It was just incredible. And so when we left that port, you know, you would sail out past, um, you know, uh, um, the harbor, you know, in the breakwater, and then you would, and then you just feel this ocean breeze on your face. And I was just uh, reminiscing about that with my girls yesterday, how amazing it was to just feel that ocean breeze on your face. And, uh, and sailing was, was when we would be able to rest a little bit and we would be able to reflect on the last port and to plan for our next port. Um, but sailing was also a great moment for us to remember our place in the universe. Um, because whilst, whilst we were sailing, life kind of made sense um, because, because 
somehow God seemed, while we were sailing, he seemed at the same time both incredibly massive and incredibly close. Uh, he was huge and he was close, as reflected in the ocean and the horizon and the sky. And I'm sure if you've ever sailed, uh, then you would understand what that is. But, but the thing is that on the voyage, even though that was there for us, ready to experience, uh, you could miss all of that. And the way that you could miss that is if you stayed inside, because inside was air conditioning, Inside was friends and food and movies on laptops. Inside was seasickness tablets. Inside you could lie on your bunk and let the ship rock you to sleep. I don't know if you've ever been rocked to sleep by a ship, but it's incredibly hard to resist. It's like, you know, it's the closest that you could feel to have a giant lifting you up in his arms and just rocking you to sleep, you know? It's, it's amazing. And then when you mix that in with the seasickness tablets, trying to resist that is really hard. And so you could actually sleep the whole of the voyage away, just making it into the dining room for the meals. And, uh, and then you go back to the you know, your cabin, and if, like most of the people, you lived under the waterline, uh, then you did not have a porthole, you did not have a window, and so you could leave one port and arrive in the port and never once look outside and see that you were sailing. Which is why, when you're on voyages, the best thing to do was to get up from your bed or the floor on which you were laying, because you're probably seasick and you might not be able to make it back to bed, so you just lie down wherever you are in situ. But the best thing for you to do when sailing was to get up and to climb up all the way to the top of the ship onto deck nine. Because when you were on deck nine, you, you could see the funnel and the radar, and but also, there on that deck, that was where the sky started. And sometimes you just need to see the sky. Sometimes you just needed to lie down on top of deck nine and look up at the sky and just experience it. And at nighttime, it was incredible because it was black, black, black. There was no light pollution at all. It was just black and you would lie there and you would realize how small you are and how big the world is and how big the God who created this world is. And then as your eyes adjusted, because it was nighttime and it was really black, really dark, you became aware of stars. Now, first of all, you saw stars in their dozens, okay? There was, you know, it's a few. Um, and then as, you know, as your eyes adjusted, uh, you saw stars in their hundreds. And then, as you started to get even more night vision, you saw you you started to see not just the bright stars or the you know all the dozens or the hundreds, but you would see you know the clusters of stars and the nebula and the galaxies and this kind of misty thing that happens when there's lots of stars far away together, and and then stars were and then you would see more and more stars and it would go from horizon to horizon, not just straight up but that you would see it across like you're sat in some kind of an IMAX movie theater just looking at stars. 
and, uh, and the sky, like I said, feels so big, and God feels so big, and you feel so small as you're lying down there on deck nine, and, and you, you want to sheer, or you want to shout from sheer exuberance at the incredibleness of it all, but at the same time, you just want to curl up and hide because it's maybe too much. You know, the vertigo and the awe and the wonder and the fear. Exodus chapter 20, which is uh, on the piece of paper which you have, starting at verse 18, says this. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled in fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. What an image, what a picture. So, so far God has um, really provided for uh, the people of Israel, right? Through the plagues and the exodus and the parting of the Red Sea, he's met their needs um, through the manna and the quail and the water. He's shown them what Sabbath rest is like. He's shown them how to have a healthy workload. In short, God up until now has been showing his people that he loves them, that he will protect them, and that he will provide for them. And now we're in the part of the Bible where God gives his laws. Now the order here is very important. God first shows his love for the Hebrews in rescuing them while they were helpless, while they were still slaves. He further shows his love in meeting all of their needs while they're just people who complain over and over again, but he still shows his love and he still meets their needs. And it's only after showing his extravagant love over and over and over again that he starts to outline what this relationship looks like exactly through the laws. Why is this important? Well, this order is important because it shows, it showed them and it shows us that we do not earn God's love by keeping the Ten Commandments or any law. We, like they, receive God's love as a gracious gift. And it's only in the context of that unearned loving relationship that we learn how to live according to God's ways. I think many times we can get that the wrong way around and I think that the church gets a bad reputation when we start to say, you have to live in this way so that God will love you. But that's not how it works. God loves you. And therefore, in the context of that relationship, this is how he invites us to live. It's a bit like if someone rescues you from a perilous situation. It's all adrenaline as they plunge into the burning building and they pull you out. There's very little words exchanged. There's not a lot said, maybe even none. But then as you're sat outside and you're breathing clean air, you've been checked over by the paramedics, your rescuer looks over at you. She laughs through her oxygen mask and says, hey, I'm Fran. This is God saying, hey, I'm Yahweh after rescuing them. And in saying, hi, I'm Yahweh, God outlines the kingdom that he wants to create, one that's based on who he is, on who he is. Why is this important? Um, because, like I said, that the law is given in the context of love. 
that love is not earned in the context of law. I'll say that again. The law is given in the context of love. That love is not earned in the context of law. And so God tells his people at this moment, he tells them what he expects of them. And so Exodus chapter 20 to 23, like I said, is God explaining his laws. So first of all, in chapter 20, God is, explains his famous 10 words or his famous 10 commandments. And then chapter 21, 22 and 23 outlines the framework of the kind of society that God wants to build based on the 10 words, based on the 10 commandments. And so these 10 words in chapter 20 are not arbitrary. They reflect who God is. And the first four are how we're supposed to relate to each other, as you'll see on your sheet of paper. So let's read them all, all together. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. Second one, you shall not make for yourself, and let's all read it together. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Third, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Fourth, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And of course we know how important the Sabbath is because God's already, already addressed it. And then the next six commandments or words show how we're supposed to relate to each other. So let's read these all together, nice and loud. Number five, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land your Lord, your God is giving you. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And someone once said, if we can get number 10 right, that looks after all of the other ones. <laughs> Maxie Dunham, referring to the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, wrote this. He's, he says this, for, for Israel, the law bound together a heterogeneous group of slaves into a nation, a community that endures to the present time. Isn't that amazing that this community still exists based on these laws? He, he then writes this, the law became the outward expression of the covenant, so we call it the covenant law. And obedience to the law was Israel's response to the covenant. It was the outward and visible sign of there being a, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so, and then we move on to chapter 21 through chapter 23. And these are the practical ways to live out chapter 20 in society. Warren Wearsby explains it like this. He says, having stated his basic law, God then told Moses how to apply it to specific situations so that everyone would receive equal justice. No person was to take the law into his or, or, or her own hands. And as you read through chapters 21 through 23, it's amazing how specific these laws are. Uh, how can we understand this? Well, it's a bit like this. Let's say Wendy comes up to me and she goes, hey, would you mind making a spicy butter chicken curry and a korma, you know, and a korma curry? But what if I don't know how to make a spicy butter chicken curry and a korma curry? 
Well, then Wendy needs to explain to me. She says, okay, you have to get three cups of rice. You have to fill the rice cooker up to level three with water. Then you have to press the button that cooks the rice for 40 minutes. It's the white rice button. Then you have to get the raw chicken from the fridge. You have to cut it up. You have to split the chicken into two equal piles. Then you have to grab two pans from the drawer and cook the chicken for five minutes. Then you empty the korma sauce and the spicy butter chicken sauce into the other. Then you turn down the heat and you let it sim simmer for between 20 and 30 minutes. Uh, then there's, you know, the pop, the poppadoms and the naan bread and the chutney and all this stuff. But once Wendy has explained the practical outworkings of her command, and I show her that I understand, <laughs> next time Wendy can just come up to me and say, hey, can you make the curry? And last night, what did I do? I made the curry. I made the curry. Yay! And it was okay. No one died. So, uh, so in a similar way, the Ten Commandments, or words, are a cheat sheet for the societal laws of chapters 21 to 23. Which means that God, he doesn't have to come up to the people each time and go, if a bull gores a man or woman to death, the bull is to be stoned to death and its meat must not be eaten, but the owner of the bull will not be held responsible if, however, the bull has the habit of goring and the owner has been warned but has not kept it penned up and it kills a man or a woman, the bull is to be stoned and its owner is also to be put to death. God doesn't have to say that each time. He can simply remind them of the principle, thou shalt not murder, you shall not murder, which is a lot easier to remember. But if they do need a reminder, then they can turn to the law, to Exodus 21 um, and, uh, you know, through to 23. So the Ten Commandments are a summaries of the whole law, a reflection of God's character and the building blocks of society, things that we all are able to agree on. But then later, if we go into the New Testament, because people have poor memories, Jesus makes the Ten Commandments, which is a summary of the societal laws, he makes those Ten Commandments even easier to remember. Matthew chapter 22, which is on your sheets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment that sums up commands one through four. And the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself, which sums up commands five through ten. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Love God and love others. And so you imagine, you know, the people then, right? It's like, love God, love others as myself, which means, okay, that means I must not murder, which means that if my bull has a habit of goring, I need to take care of the situation before something bad happens, right? That's kind of how this works. Now, that's all well and good, but if you look closely between Exodus 21 through 17, um, where the Ten Words are, or the Ten Commands, and the start of chapter 21, which is this larger social code, there are four verses that are easy to overlook. Exodus 20, verses 18 through, through to 21. And as you read along with me, in these short verses, what happens is that the people experience lightning and thunder and the sound of a trumpet, the smoking mountain, it's a scary picture and they're trembling in fear and they stay at a distance and then Exodus 20 verse number 20 says this, it's the verse that I read at the beginning, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning and then the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. 
Now, if you're tuned out at the moment, this is the moment to tune in. Because I don't want you to miss this, right? It's, it, it's like when you sell houses. There's lots of people selling houses. Our, our neighbors had to move over the road. You know, uh, you know, there are lots of people selling houses uh, because houses are worth a lot at the moment. And, and, you know, it's this old saying, right, that it's all about location, location, location. Well, it's the same here, that this verse is all about location, location, lo location. Because first God gives his ten words to the people. Then Moses says, says to his people, after giving them his ten words, he says, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Right? This is the context so you can keep these words. Um, and then get God gives this larger social code. And so Exodus 20, verse number 20, relates to what has happened prior to it, and it also relates to what is going to happen afterwards. And the location is important because God is drawing our attention to this one verse. And this verse tells us that the way to not sin, according to Yahweh, is to not be afraid, but to have the fear of God with you. It's to don't be afraid, but to fear. This is the key to not sinning, to, to keeping the, you know, the Ten Commandments and the larger social code is to, is to not fear and to fear. Now, when I read that, it, I don't know how to explain it, but it felt like my world stopped because I'd never read that verse before and it was God laid his hand on my shoulder and he was like you need to listen to this now in the book known as the Bible Recap it's a podcast as well and if you're a podcast listener I highly recommend listening to this but this author called Tara Lee Cobble she writes something really profound it's a longer quotation but I think it's worth listening to because it helps us understand this do not fear fear thing and so let's listen to what she says, because I think it really clears up a lot. Quote, when the people see God's power and are afraid, Moses says something that seems contradictory at first. Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So shall we be afraid or not? There's a crucial distinction to make between the two uses of the word fear. The, the fear in quotes, do not fear, carries the idea of dread. This kind of fear drives us away from God. It's sin adjacent, okay? I want you to remember that phrase, sin adjacent fear. But Moses uses a different word when he refers to fearing God. And it carries the idea of reverence and awe. It's joy adjacent. Lock that phrase away again. And it has the effect of drawing us to God. So the fear of God is composed primarily of delight and awe moving us towards God. It's like what we feel at the Grand Canyon. We take long trips to go stand on the edge with our eyes and our mouths wide open, overwhelmed with the beauty, yet knowing it could kill us. Moses says that's the kind of fear that keeps us from sinning against God. I like the kind of fear that draws me closer to God because he's where the joy is, end quote. Friends, I love what Tara Lee Cobble just said. 
In Exodus 20, 20, God moves us away from sin-adjacent fear to joy-adjacent fear. And it's this awe-inspiring, joy-adjacent fear that keeps us from sinning. Friends, when, when, when God's people were faced with God on the mountain, their natural response was to be as far away from him as they were able to, because God, in his raw godness, is absolutely terrifying. We like to maybe domesticate him and make him just an oversized version of us. But God, in his godness, is lightning and thunder and trumpets and earthquakes. But it's in the context of that that God, through his mediator Moses, says, do not fear. And friends, you only have to be told not to fear something if your natural response is to fear it. No one says, do not fear, it's just a kitten. No one says that. But if it's a wild lion that's not roped at all, then you can be told not to fear it. Because there's good reason to fear it. And we can only not fear a lion if it's a good lion. Like C.S. Lewis wrote in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, um, Aslan is a lion, this is Mr. Beaver talking, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel, feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And God, like Aslan, and God, like the Grand Canyon, isn't safe. So have the fear of God with you. But God, like Aslan, is good. So don't be afraid. Embrace joy-adjacent fear, not sin-adjacent fear. It's joy-adjacent fear that forms this foundation of the social code of Exodus 21 through to 23. It's joy-adjacent fear that forms the foundation of the Ten Commandments. And it's joy-adjacent fear that forms the foundation of the Jesus' command to love the Lord your God with everything and to love your neighbor as yourself. Joy-adjacent fear. And so this week I encourage you actually to wrestle with Exodus 2020 yourself. Because friends, when God places a paradoxical verse like this, right after one of the most important famous passages in the Bible, God is inviting us into that space to wrestle with it. And so if we just read this verse and we just move on, we're missing the point. If we read Exodus 20.20 and we say, hey, I don't have to fear God because it says, do not be afraid, you're wrong. Because this verse also says, the fear of God may be with you so that you may not sin. However, on the other hand, if we read Exodus 20, 20, and we say, be very afraid, be afraid, uh, because it says the fear of God may be with you, you're wrong. Because this verse clearly says, do not be afraid. You know, I feel like that guy in, in The Princess Bride, you know, you know, the poison's clearly not in front of you. And so, you know, I feel like that. It's like, which one is it? Friends, the hope of the Israelites was found on a hill where darkness fell, where there was an earthquake, and where God met with his people through a mediator. And Exodus 20, 21 says, the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And our hope this morning is found on a hill where darkness fell, where there was an earthquake, and where God met with us through a mediator. But it wasn't Moses this time. It's not Moses, it's Jesus. 
Matthew 27 verse 45 says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice uh, this phrase, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Moses was not a perfect mediator between God and humanity. Because of his sin, Moses was actually stopped from entering into the promised land. But Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, he enters the promised land on our behalf as the perfect, holy, sinless one. And he brings us along with him if we trust him and we follow him in faith. And it's through Jesus that we can experience this joy adjacent fear. It's through Jesus that we are invited to experience the awe of God and the fear of God. It's, but, it's, but it's easy for us, right? Like those folks on the Logos Hope, to stay inside our little cocooned lives with the air conditioning and our understanding of God and our sleep, sleep sickness tablets and just be lulled into sleep. It's easy to let the routines of life um, Make us dream our lives away. But instead, what I invite you to do this morning is to not sleep your life away with simplistic understandings of who God is. Instead, let's climb all the way onto deck nine and let's allow our imaginations to gaze into the infinities of who God is. Uh, this wonderful paradox of God uh, who tells us that, that loving him and loving others is rooted in fearing him in not fearing him and allowing his fear to be with us. And as we approach this thick darkness where God is, just like Moses did, as we gaze into the majesty and the mystery of who God is, as he's revealed in the Bible, other facets of God, ones that we did not see, will start to show up on our horizons like stars in the night sky. But only to the heart that's willing to sit in the darkness long enough to let those stars show up. But if we do take the time, the view is spectacular. And we will realize that, that this God who says to us, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God may be with you to keep you from sinning. That this God is worth worshiping and he's worth loving because this is the one true God that we can approach through Jesus in joy adjacent fear.